I need you to turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 3, because Mark got it all wrong and I need to fix it. I'm so glad you left. I am not here to fix anything. Um, but a couple weeks ago, Mark was teaching on 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you were in my small group that night, you know I went rambling on a certain topic and it has stuck with me. And it was about that time that Mark asked me if I would teach tonight. And I thought I would um, talk about the uh, kind of the rabbit trail I went down while he was preaching. And I want to start reading to you from 2 Peter 3. And just so you know, I really don't feel like I need to fix anything. I don't need to add to what Mark said. But tonight we're going to illustrate this passage. And in 2 Peter, starting in verse 3, there's a couple of concepts in this passage that I want you to pick up on. I'll just read it. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his what? Promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. There is your global warming. And it's not because you didn't drive a Prius. Okay, that is a promise of God of what's going to happen to this earth. Okay, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Obedience. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his what? Promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace and obeying, spotless and blameless. And do not, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. And I'll stop there. There's three, three themes running through that passage. And those themes are what we want to talk about tonight. I highlighted them a little bit as we went through. The first theme is obedience, right? We've heard a lot about obedience from 2 Peter chapter 3. We're to be found by him spotless and blameless. The, the um, theme of repentance is throughout this passage. It's repentance and salvation. There's an assumption that you're not always going to be obedient. And all God's people said, amen, right? We're not always obedient. And so there's the principle of repentance. The Lord is not slow about his promise, Peter says, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the patience of God. And it goes on to say we're to be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And that speaks to obedience, but also Repentance, that's what repentance is. You see, repentance isn't words, it's action. It's obedience in place of disobedience. When Paul was preaching to the new church, the church is just born. There's thousands of people there. In Acts 2.38, he said to them, repent. That's the gospel message. And that's the message for believers. Paul later in Acts chapter 26 says that we're to repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. Repentance is not words, it's action, it's deeds. And then the third theme through that passage that Mark highlighted for us, that I highlighted as I read, I made you say the word, and that is promises. So there's obedience, and when we don't obey, there's repentance. And there's promises. Promises are embedded in these verses amidst the commands to obey and repent. I have really good news for you tonight. God keeps his promises. I have really bad news, maybe for some of you. God keeps his promises. And we need to think about that tonight. 
you need to think about which side of that equation you're on. Is that good news to you or is that bad news? As you read through 2 Peter 3 of what's going to happen to this place, that can scare you or it can thrill you. But I can tell you this, and I want to show you this tonight, that you can absolutely count on the fact that God keeps his promises. And when he says he's going to burn this place down, what's going to happen? This place is going to burn down. When God says to obey or something is going to happen, you need to remember that God keeps his promises. You know, in Ecclesiastes 12, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this. You're probably familiar with this verse, verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been said and heard, fear God and what? Keep his commandments. Good. Obey. There's the obedience concept. Because this applies to every person. There's a promise. There's a promise. Then verse 14 in Ecclesiastes 12, for God will bring every act to judgment. Is that a promise? That's a promise. God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, regardless of whether it's good or evil. If you believe that God keeps his promises, then that's either really good news or that's really bad news. So in those three themes, you know, when you read through scripture, and and like this week, as I've been preparing this, I start seeing this everywhere. We tend to readily see the commands to obey because we get that, don't we? And maybe it's just me. And we may notice the need to repent, but it's really easy to completely miss the promises that God makes in the context of obey and repent. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. And as I said, Mark did a great job preaching through those passages. And what I want to do tonight is using 1 Samuel 15, I want to illustrate that. I want to show you that. I want you walking out tonight more convinced than ever. Number one, that God keeps his promises. And then number two, either that's really good news or that's really bad news. And if that's bad news to you tonight, I want to talk to you afterwards. We need to turn that to good news. The story you're going to hear from 1 Samuel 15 will tie together obedience, repentance, and the promises of God. The dual characteristics of God, which are his unchanging holiness and his patience and how that interacts with obedience and repentance. We look back in history to see that God means what he says, and he says exactly what he means. How many people do you know like that? Not very many. God says what he means, and he means what he says. He makes promises, and he keeps his promises. That should be a great comfort as we look to the future. If you're not saved and you haven't repented of your sins, you should be very, very concerned. God has promised every single human being throughout the history of the world and into eternity one of two things. Let's just start with the most basic promise that you and I are confronted with. And yes, I say confronted. We are given the promise of salvation or the promise of what? Eternal separation from God. Every single person will be the recipient of either the promise of salvation or the promise of eternal separation from God. God keeps his promises. We're going to look at the life of King Saul as an illustration, the connection between obedience, repentance, and the promise of God. And Saul's failure was not just his disobedience. You're going to see his disobedience. His great failure, the one he could never come back from, is that he could not and he would not repent. And it was the arrogance of ignoring God's promises, the, the arrogance of assuming that God didn't really mean what he said that kept Saul from repentance. 
And that arrogance is evidenced by the failure to repent. And in Saul's life, he was given, I'm going to walk you through this. He was given several opportunities. And despite the long-suffering patience of a holy God, giving Saul every possible chance to do the right thing, Saul refused. And he received the promise of God. This is a cautionary tale. The promises in this story involve a nation, the Amalekites, and two kings, a guy named Agag and a guy named Saul. And the timing of God's, God makes promises to the Amalekites, he makes promises to Agag, and he makes promises to Saul. And the timing of God keeping these promises is puzzling, it's problematic, and it's really, really confusing. Until you remember 2 Peter. Why does God, why is God patient? So let's look at the story. 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1, you're going to see right away the clarity of the command to Saul. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. He's making clear to Saul, God made you king. So now God's going to tell you what to do. Okay. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go, strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Anybody confused by what Saul was just told to do? That's a lot of clarity, isn't it? Should there be anything walking away from those people when he's done? It's pretty clear. There's no ambiguity. And I can imagine it's a difficult command. That's not a very loving thing to do, is it? Verse 3, utterly destroy all that he has. Don't spare him. Put him to death, both man and woman, child and infant. Ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Do you see what's about to happen? Saul's given a command. A very clear command. God didn't stutter. He didn't make it confusing. He made it really clear. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what I'm commanding you to do. And let me pull over a little bit and tell you about the Amalekites. You need to understand, the ba- it helps the story to understand <clears throat> that the Amalekites had a history. Amalek refers to the name of the nation's founder who was the grandson of Esau. Anybody remember the name Esau? Old Testament, way back in the beginning. The Amalekites hated Israel. They were committed to the destruction of Israel. And it all started with Esau. In fact, God said, God called Esau in Hebrews 12, 16, immoral and godless. He called it, he said he hated him in Malachi chapter one. And that was quoted in uh, Romans 9, 13. In Obadiah 18, God pronounces a curse on the house of the Amalekites, the nation, and he says there will be no survivors. Is that a promise? That's a promise. If God says it, it's a promise. And you don't have to turn there, but listen to Exodus chapter 17. This is all history that is well known in the nation of Israel in the time of Saul. Saul knew exactly why he was going to exterminate the Amalekites. And you need to understand that. Israel is just coming out of Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea, if you know that story, that dramatic time. And there are the, the nation, thousands and thousands of people are coming up out of Egypt. And there's always stragglers at the back. Anybody gone backpacking? There's always a straggler, isn't there? Well, what the Amalekites did in verse 8 of Exodus 17, it says, then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. And we find out later that he starts picking off the people in the back. And he's going to start working his way up, or the, nation, the Amalekites. 
Verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I'm going to station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses commanded it, and he fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about that when Moses held his hand up, Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Ever heard this story before? It's pretty interesting. But Moses' hands were heavy. Now, before you make fun of Moses, tonight you have to stand in front of the mirror and hold your hands up as long as you can. And realize if you ever drop your hands, all your people start getting killed. That's what's going on. And Moses' arms get heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Verse 14 of Exodus 17, then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an an altar at that point and named it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. And ultimately, God makes the promise that he's going to wipe out the Amalekites. You heard that, right? It's a promise. It's not the kind of promise we like to focus on, but that's a promise. They are doomed to obliteration. And the question is, why didn't God just do it? They're at war anyway, right? Why not just do it? If he's he's going to keep his promise, why didn't he just do it there in Exodus 17? Well, you go later in Deuteronomy 25, uh, Moses is coming to the end of his life and he's preaching a sermon and he's reminding the people of the treachery of the Amalekites. He's doing what God commanded him to do, which was to remind Joshua and remind the people. And he says, it says in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 25, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear. When you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your surrounding enemies and the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. What's the sin? It wasn't that they were killing Jews. It was that they didn't fear God. And that was evidenced by killing the Jews coming out of Egypt. There was an unwillingness to obey God. There was a promise by God related to that lack of obedience. I will blot them out. So why didn't God do it then? Why didn't he do it then? All of this was known by Saul. All of this was known by um, the nation that Saul was leading. And so when the command comes in verse 3, that says, go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul and the people know that the promise is about to be fulfilled for Amalek. Verse four, what happens? Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. We've got an army going here. There's a lot of Amalekites, apparently. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And he he sent and said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites. The Kenites are living among the Amalekites. Saul's been told to wipe out the Amalekites. And he tells the Kenites, Get out of there. Something bad is about to happen. Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. Well, if the Amalekites hear that being told to the Kenites, what do you think the Amalekites are going to start doing? Getting out of Dodge, don't you think? There is the threshold disobedience of Saul. 
And we'll see how we know that's what happened later. So Saul defeated the Amalekites, verse 7. From Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is, in, which is east of Egypt, he captured Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. What should he have done with Agag? Killed him. Was there any confusion in verse 3? He captures him alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Saul did some of what he was told, didn't he? Verse 10, here's God's assessment of whether Saul obeyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. The prophet saying, this is the same Samuel who communicated from God that Saul was to be king. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul and it, it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Wow. Then turned and proceeded to the town of Gilgal. In case you miss what that means, he put up a monument to himself so that everyone could look at it and say what a great person Saul was. Just a couple of observations here. Partial obedience is counted as complete and total disobedience. If God says, do A, B, and C, and you do A, B, and half of C, were you obedient? You were not. That's God's standard. Disobedience is turning your back on the commands of God. Saul was pretty impressed with himself. I think uh, we can say there was a little bit of the um, lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life in Saul right here. Samuel was more distressed about Saul's sin than Saul was. Do you think Saul knew he had disobeyed? I mean, when God says kill everything, tear it all down, and you don't, you know you've disobeyed. Well, confrontation number one, Samuel comes to Saul now. And this is the first of four opportunities for Saul to own his sin, to repent. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the commands of the Lord. Is that true? We would never do that, would we? Oh, I obeyed. Maybe he won't know. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Who brought them from the Amalekites? Did you see that? They. They did it. I didn't do it. They brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. He initially lies. I obeyed. Samuel immediately shoots that down and says, wait, that's what, what am I hearing? Um, and he shifts the blame. The people did it. And then he tries to sanctify his sin. We didn't kill everything so we could sacrifice it to God. Is that disobedience? It's still disobedience. Verse 16, confrontation number two. Samuel says to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes that you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are, what? My Bible says exterminated. Your Bible probably has, if you have a different version, wiped out, annihilated. In other words, you were to fulfill the promise. He didn't do that. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. 
But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. It's almost the same response as the first time, except he owns it now, a little bit. Samuel rehearses the history. He says, the Lord made you king. He sent you on a mission and you disobeyed. And it's evil in the sight of God. And Saul lies again. But he says, I did obey. I went on the mission. You see, since I went on the mission, that was what God told me to do. Whatever happened after that, you know, there's a lot of people out there. He shifts the blame and he tries to sanctify his sin again. I brought it all back to sacrifice to God so I can make sacrifices. And then Samuel comes at him a third time. Patience, patience, patience. Opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. Verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Have you heard that verse before? That's the context. Stop trying to justify your disobedience, Saul, by saying, I'm going to go sacrifice these animals to God. God doesn't want that. He wants obedience. Verse 23, for for rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, finally, what does it say? I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He finally repented, didn't he? Did he? He certainly confessed, I've sinned, I was a wuss. He says it right there. That's the accounting translation. (laughs) I was a wuss. I let the people do what they wanted to do. I have sinned. I've sinned against God, he even says. Now, please forgive my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Not your Lord, says the Lord now. Is that repentance? Verse 26 answers that question. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You see, saying I sinned, that's not repentance. Naming your sin, that's not repentance. Asking for forgiveness, that's not repentance. Going to church, saying I want to go worship, that's not repentance. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. I just want you to think about this for a minute. You don't have to respond to me, but I want you to think, how many of you, when you heard me read verses 24 and 25, thought that's repentance? How many of you in your own life have confessed You've named your sin. You've identified that you sinned against God. You've asked for forgiveness and you've gone back to fellowship in the church with other believers to be in fellowship at church and you would have thought that's repentance. You need to think about this. This is very serious. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe. This is a very emotional moment for Saul. Now he's, if you will, crying. It doesn't say he's crying but he's being very emotional. He grabs the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And that's David. Also the glory of Israel, God will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God keeps his promises. Verse 30, then he said, there it is again. Saul says, I've sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. 
Boy, some of this is really puzzling. None of that's repentance. God doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. He defines what obedience is. He defines what repentance is. And he has made a promise to every single one of us. You are either saved or you will be forever separated from God. See, Saul wanted his confession covered. He wanted it accepted. He didn't want consequences. And he goes right back to worship and not understanding that obedience is better than sacrifice. So let's just review here for a minute. What have we learned about obedience or disobedience? First of all, disobedience is very, very serious. I hope you've got that picture. It's pretty hard to miss that from 1 Samuel 15. Partial obedience is what? Disobedience. God demands complete, total obedience. We don't get to pick. Another lesson is that talk is cheap. It's in there somewhere. That may be an accountant translation, but talk is cheap. Saying you obeyed does not change whether you obeyed or not. God defines obedience, not what we say. Disobedience is doing evil in the sight of God or said another way. When we're disobedient, it is seen as evil by God. Disobedience is personal. Another lesson we've seen, the sin of others has no bearing on you and the obedience of others has no bearing on you or me. It's you and me, one-on-one with God. Nobody else. You don't get credit for the obedience of others. You don't get to say, I'm with them. I hang out with this group of people. They're really good people. They're seen by everybody as good Christians. Therefore, I'm okay. It has nothing to do with it. Or I go to this church or some other church. I worship here. Therefore, I am, I'm good. Another lesson about obedience is that obedience is better than sacrifice. Going to church might make you feel better, but it has no bearing on your standing before a holy God or your status of whether you're obedient or disobedient. God also says in this passage that disobedience is insubordination. It's ignoring the authority of God. And we'll take it a step further in the context of what we're looking at tonight. It's ignoring the promise of God. It's assuming that God has made certain promises related to disobedience. And you're saying, ah, that doesn't apply to me. Doesn't apply to me. And what's the solution to disobedience? It's repentance. We've learned a few things about repentance with Saul. Confession is not repentance. If you're writing these down, don't miss that one. You know, I've been around the church a long time. I've been a sinner for a long time. There's professional confessors. They're very good. Maybe some of us are very good at confessing our sin. We like to talk about our sin. We think we sound really spiritual by confessing our sin. And confession is important. It says in James 5, what the purpose of confession is. The purpose is prayer and healing, but it is not repentance. Confession is not repentance. Tears and sadness are not repentance. Going to church isn't repentance. Talking to or being seen with spiritual leaders is not repentance. Repentance is obedience. It's going back and doing what you know you need to do, undoing the effects of your disobedience or doing what you know you should have done to be obedient. And to put it very bluntly, and I know there's a lot of blunt things being said tonight, but a failure to repent is what sends you to hell. That is the difference. So that all of that addresses the problem of disobedience and the evidence of repentance. What about the promises of God? Let's circle back now. We've learned some things about obedience. We've learned some things about repentance. And there's a lot of promises involved 
in what I've read you in 1 Samuel 15. And if, you've, if you're paying attention, there's a whole lot of promises that are still hanging, aren't there? You've got Agag in the story. He's still alive. You've got Saul. At this point in the story, he's still king. You have the Amalekites. They have escaped and they live to fight Israel and God another day. In fact, another 500 years. Does God keep his promises? Well, we need to close the loop on some of that. God wasn't kidding. He wasn't bluffing. He didn't change his mind. We read that. God doesn't change his mind. He wasn't unclear. Agag, I promise you, didn't misunderstand what God said. Saul didn't understand what God said. The Amalekites knew what God had said. But why won't he do what he promised? Let's close the loop. Let's keep reading in 1 Samuel 15. Finish the story. Look at some promises being fulfilled. Verse 32, Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, And Agag came to him cheerfully, and here's Agag's last words. Surely the bitterness of death is past. Think about that. Agag thought he got away with it. God didn't mean what he said. Verse 33, but Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed, some of your Bibles say hacked, Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. A very graphic verse. If I ever teach junior hires, that's what I would teach right there. Junior hires, little junior high guys would love that story. But I don't want to make light of it either. God just kept his promise. Why didn't God do that right away? Well, 2 Peter 3, it answers that. Don't let this fact escape your notice that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. Why didn't God kill Agag right away? Patience. Why the patience? Because Agag was given lots of chances to repent. In his final words, he completely misread the patience of the Lord. Completely. Surely the bitterness of death is past. And then Samuel did what who was supposed to do? Saul. How would Saul have demonstrated and exhibited repentance? He would have hacked Agag to pieces. Saul refused. Saul went through a series of four confrontations, given the opportunity over and over and over. Saul, just go do what you need to do. And he didn't do it. So Samuel did it. He did what Saul had to do. And at that moment, he removed the ability of Saul to demonstrate any repentance. Saul was done. So Agag, promises kept Agag, rather graphically. Verse 28, let's start looking at Saul. So Samuel said to him, the Lord to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. I've already read this to you and has given it to your neighbor who's better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul knew Amalek had to be destroyed. He didn't believe God. He rebelled. He knew better than God. He refused to believe what God said about his future. It says Saul rejected the word of the Lord. He knew better. He refused to obey and he missed the opportunity to repent. Verse 34, jumping back down now, says, then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at at Gibeah of Saul Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. And that's the day of Samuel's death. For Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. He says it again. Samuel was more grieved over Saul's sin and his lack of repentance than Saul was. 
Saul was done as king. It was the promise. It was the end of the road. So why is Saul still king? Why is Saul still king? Because of the what? The patience of God. The incredible, ongoing patience of God. I'll read it to you again. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the reign of Saul continues. And I feel like I need to close that loop, and it's an interesting loop. If you want, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30, or you can just listen. It's story time tonight. It's a little different tonight, isn't it? Telling you stories. Stories with deep meaning. 1 Samuel 30, then it happened when David and his men, I'm not going to give you a ton of context, you'll get it. When they came to Ziklag on the third day, that the who? The Amalekites, what? Had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire and they took captive women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive by who? The Amalekites. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. They're assuming that the Amalekites have done to them what Saul was supposed to do to the Amalekites. Drop down to verse 16 of 1 Samuel 30. David's obviously going after the Amalekites. He hears where they are. He takes his army, goes down there. When he brought them down, behold, they were spread over all the land. The Amalekites are spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Verse 17, (laughs) Uh, David slaughtered them from twilight until evening the next day, and not a man of them escaped except what? 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. The Amalekites live to fight another day. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. I tell you that story so you know that that helps interpret 1 Samuel 15, that when the Kenites are warned, the Amalekites, some escape and they live to fight another day. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 1, there's an interesting story. The end of Saul's life. The rest of um, uh, 1 Samuel 30 and and 1 Samuel 31 is about the death of Saul, but I want to jump ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 1 and read this to you. It came about after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites that David remained two days in Ziklag. And then it talks about a young man wandering into the camp of David that says that King Saul and his son, Jonathan, David's friend, are dead. Verse 5, so David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and behold, Saul was leaning on a spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and he said, and I said, here I am. And Saul said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am a what? An Amalekite. Then Saul said to me, please stand beside me and kill me for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. Saul is obviously wounded from battle. Verse 10, so I stood beside him. This is the Amalekite and I killed Saul because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown, which was on his head and the bracelet, which was on his arm. And I have brought him here to my Lord. David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. By the way, you have some homework. Hopefully this will be intriguing for you. David instantly kills that messenger. He knows he's lying. And if you want to know why, go back and read 1 Samuel 31. Tonight, later. You'll understand why when you read 1 Samuel 31. But all this to say, 
the very people that Saul was commanded to wipe off the face of the earth are the people that God used to do what? Keep his promise to Saul, take his kingdom away, to wipe Saul off the face of the earth. After 41 years, Saul finally lost his kingdom. God's timing, God's way, it took a really long time. And what's important to note in that story is that Saul never repented. He never repented. The patience of the Lord is for what? Repentance, for salvation. Saul rejected it. He ignored it. And finally, he received the promise at the hand of the very people God told him to destroy. So the promise has been kept now to Agag, to Saul. What about the Amalekites? Well, it took a while. Because of Saul's disobedience, the Amalekites continued to be the sworn enemy of Israel with terrible consequence. And you can read it throughout the Old Testament. Saul didn't exterminate the Amalekites. So they continued to live to exterminate exterminate Israel, to plague Israel. 500 years later, anybody know the story of Haman in the book of Esther? Haman, it says, in Esther 3.1, says that he is an Agagite. You know what that means? He's a descendant of King who? Agag. And Haman attempted to exterminate the Jewish race from Persia. It's all recorded in Esther 3, and it's shortly after this event that the Amalekites were annihilated. They were blotted out. Today, you won't find anyone calling themselves an Amalekite because they don't exist. Completely wiped off the face of the earth. 500 years later, God keeps his promise. Why did it take so long? Well, Don't let this one fact escape you, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Amalekites were given 500 years. I want to close with three things for us to consider tonight. The list could have been 13. I trust that you'll go home tonight and think about this. Apply this. Consider all of this. I'm going to put it in three different ways, things I'd love for you to think about. One, I hope you see the lesson tonight. The first lesson is that obedience is not a buffet. Do you know what a buffet is? I grew up with buffets. I don't think there's a lot of buffets anymore. But a buffet was all you can eat. And you didn't have to eat anything you didn't want to eat. If there was a pile of cucumbers there, I don't have to eat those cucumbers. Broccoli, are you kidding? Pass the broccoli. I'm going to eat the pudding and the jello. That's what a buffet is. Obedience is not a buffet. You don't get to pick. I don't get to pick. There are no acceptable sins. There's no acceptable disobedience. When God says it, we what? Do it. When God says don't do it, we what? Don't do it. Because God promises consequences. You don't get to say that you don't commit big sins, so you must be okay. There are no minor sins. And there's no major sins. There's sin. There's disobedience. All are an affront to God with the promise of death. And you and I don't get to define sin. We don't have the authority to relegate sin to levels of seriousness. And we have zero standing to tell God that he's too patient or he's not patient enough. God is God and we are not. Obedience is not a buffet. Number two. Second application, you need to repent while you can. Repent while you can. Take advantage of the patience of God. Romans 2, starting at verse 4, says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, 
not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to what? You know it now. Repentance. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. His attributes, his incredible attributes in Romans 2, 4 are laid out there. His kindness, his tolerance, and his patience, and his kindness. It's all a bundle. You and I, whether you're saved here tonight or you are not here tonight saved, you are the recipient of his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, and his kindness. The evidence of that, you're still taking in air. The patience of the Lord. Verse five of Romans two says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Does that sound like a promise? That's a promise. Does God keep his promises? He keeps his promises. Does he do it when we think he should keep his promises or we expect him to keep his promises? No. God does all of that. Because of the stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Another promise. God keeps his promises. Repent. Don't be stubborn. Don't store up wrath for yourself. If you don't repent, that is exactly what you're doing. So obedience isn't a buffet and repent while you can. And the third lesson is don't mistake the patience of the Lord as God's endorsement of your disobedience. God's patience has no bearing on the definition of obedience or how he views your sin and my sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Good, you know it. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There are the two promises in one verse. There they are. Death or life. Anything short of instant death is patience. Not your patience, not my patience. The patience of who? God. It's his kindness, his tolerance, his patience. Eternal life is grace. It's a gift. It's God's patience. His patience doesn't in in any way indicate that he missed the fact that I disobeyed. God doesn't miss a thing. We need to be slow to correlate God's intentions with current events. What do I mean by that? God doesn't react to my circumstances or my disobedience or obedience. My life bends to and reacts to a holy God. So does yours. The immovable truth that we all run into is God is God and we are not. The good news is that God is patient. He is kind. That we might repent. A correlation of events doesn't mean Causation, And let me explain what I mean there. If I work in the nursery on Sunday, very it used to be by Tuesday, I was sick. There's correlation. I worked in the nursery by Tuesday, I'm sick. Was it causation though? Did I get sick because I worked in the nursery? I don't know. What does that have to do with what we're talking about tonight? Don't mistake the patience of God as God's endorsement. Don't see correlation and assume causation. You know, when Jonah was sent to Nineveh, you you can read the book of Jonah. And one of the great mistakes of the people of Nineveh is they were wealthy and they were powerful and they were blessed. And they read all of that as if God had blessed the nation of Nineveh. And what they had no idea was judgment was coming. That's what I mean. Don't mistake correlation with causation. I actually had a man tell me once I divorced my wife and my life and my business has taken off. Life has never been better. By the way, it was not a godly or a biblical divorce. It was a completely selfish act. He made a correlation and assumed a causation. God didn't miss the fact that he sinned. 
he's experiencing life. And sometimes the judgment of life is that we interpret positive developments and it obscures that we've sinned against a holy God. That judgment is coming and that that patience is that we might repent. Let's think about that. The Amalekites, they could have seen God's, or could have seen Saul's disobedience as the grace of God, couldn't they? Saul disobeyed. He preserved the nation of the, Amal- uh, of the Amalekites. That must be God's will. We're good. They missed that God keeps his promises. Don't be an agag. Surely the bitterness of death is past. Life is good. I know I'm disobedient. I know I'm unrepentant, but life is good. Surely the bitterness of death has passed. Don't be an agag. Don't be a Saul. Saul saw his survival probably as in continuing reign, the most powerful king in the world as God's endorsement. He clearly didn't believe God's promises, but maybe he thought to himself, perhaps I didn't really sin. Maybe partial obedience is good enough. All of this is a crying need for accountability. You need the independent observation, and I need the independent observation and the perspective of others. I need the reminder of the word of God regularly. So do you. So many people fall into terrible patterns of sin and disobedience and a failure to repent when they cut themselves off from others, cut themselves off from accountability. We need each other. I'll tell you, if there's ever an unaccountable person, it was Saul. He was the ruler of his own kingdom, his own head. Sin makes us stupid. And part of the stupidity of sin is forgetting or ignoring the patience of God, the promises of God, that God says what he means, and he means what he says, and he keeps his promises. He's given us a time for repentance. It is time, it is a, his patience is to um, produce salvation and repentance, not additional opportunity to disobey even more. Well, let me close and just review. I just want to, Ecclesiastes 12, I already read it to you, verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been said and heard, fear God and what? Keep his commandments. Obey, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. A failure to obey and repent results in death. It's a promise. It's a promise. Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him, in God, will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. There's a promise. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Amen? For those of us who are saved, we exult in that truth. We are dead without that truth. God keeps his promises. That's a promise that we we exult in. And the reconciliation of the failure to obey and repent equals death. And the, the other truth that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved Here's a question from an accountant. That's me. How do you reconcile those two? You know how you reconcile the two of those? The patience of God. The patience of God. You see, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. If you're saved, this should be a reminder to you and me to thank the Lord for his patience. He was patient 
and you called on the name of the Lord and you were what? You were saved. For those of you here tonight who don't know Christ, those who call on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Don't misread the patience of the Lord. Use the patience of the Lord. Repent while you can. And don't mistake the patience of the Lord is God's endorsement of sin and that he won't keep his promise to you. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to you. As I prayed at the beginning of this for such a great salvation, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of our hearts, reminding us even beyond what's been said here tonight as we go from here, what a great salvation that we serve a good and a kind God, a patient God, a long-suffering God. Lord, thank you for that. I pray for those who are here tonight who don't know you, who have not repented. Lord, may they see the patience of the Lord as salvation, as the opportunity to repent. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the illustrations, the stories of the Old Testament that show us in greater color who you are. We're grateful to you, for you, and for such a great salvation in Christ's name. Amen.